Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Rick Hansen, PhD. I'll call you Rick just for informality's sake. Rick is a neurophysiologist and New York Times best-selling author. His books include Hardwiring Happiness, which I've been reading, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. Founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom and an advisory board member of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. He's been an invited speaker at Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. He has several audio programs, and his free Just One Thing newsletter, to which I'm a subscriber, has over 100,000 subscribers. So, Rick, thank you. Rick, it's a pleasure to be here at the gas yeah. pump. We've got Rick squared today. If people have been listening to this show, they've heard me say a number of times that there's a physiological component to everything that happens in the mind and that every fleeting thought must have some sort of corresponding activity in the brain and that certainly something so major as enlightenment or a profound spiritual awakening must have rather significant physiological correlates, particularly in the brain. So you're a specialty in that and that's what excited me about doing an interview with you. We'll go around that theme, but I thought maybe I'd have you start by saying the things that you've probably already said in a thousand other interviews <laughs> and, uh, and lectures, uh, just to give people a sort of a framework for understanding where you're coming from, and then hopefully we'll dig up some new territory for you to explore, or although there's nothing new under the sun. Well, if I get you right, kind of maybe the quick summary is uh, captured in this famous saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, the brain is designed to be continually changed by the information flowing through it. That information being, the entirety of that information being what neuroscientists generally mean by the word mind. Uh, that's a lowercase m mind. Uh, I personally think there is some kind of transcendental X factor uh, involved in reality altogether. But that said, inside the natural frame, what we're left with is this fundamental notion that all mental activity, thoughts, feelings, hopes, dreams, sufferings, and awakenings are based on underlying patterns of neural activity and repeated patterns of mental activity entailing repeated patterns of neural activity gradually change neural structure and function. That's the basic idea of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, which in a grounded way, in terms of actual practice, besides being intellectually cool, bringing it down to earth in our actual practice, the takeaway point is that the brain is continually shifting based on where we rest our attention and what we do with what's in the field of attention, uh, for better or worse. And we've got a brain that, for evolutionary reasons, is biased toward overlearning from negative experiences. There's this two-stage process of transformation or learning to walk instead of crawl, you know, memorizing the multiplication tables or learning how to, you know, manage your meditation in a more subtle and refined way. This two-stage process of learning involves activation and installation. We activate a mental state and then we turn it into or we install it eventually as an enduring neural trait for better or worse. So to just kind of summarize it, for me practice is very much about the, the, the disengagement from negative states becoming negative traits, fostering negative states in a vicious cycle, which the brain is prone to due to its negativity bias, it's called. And on the other hand, in particular, work the process of turning positive mental states into installed, lasting, wholesome, enduring neural traits, which then foster 
more positive states uh, of mind, including compassion, loving kindness, concentration, absorption, insight, liberating relationships to experience altogether, and so forth. And for me, what's really interesting is how to get good at working that process that is the underlying neuropsychological basis for the path of awakening. So I would say that you know any spiritual practitioner is actually engaged in a process of sculpting his brain, as it were. And uh, so a pro like the Buddha or Ramana Maharshi or someone has sculpted his brain to a profound degree. Yes, and that sculpting is really subtle. If you take the brains, let's say, of people with 10,000 or even 50,000 lifetime hours of meditative practice, and you compare them with, let's say, novice meditators, or even people that are more intermediate, but we wouldn't think of as you know, profoundly awakened, let's say. The large-scale structure of the brain is exactly the same. There's some subtleties in terms of greater activations of certain types of patterns. I can get into some of that if you like, but it's, it's not a massive change. What has particularly interested me is to try to operationalize the third and second noble truths in Buddhism. In other words, the second truth being that craving, which is a drive state based on an underlying felt sense of deficit and disturbance, that craving which drives suffering and harm from subtle to gross. And then also, what does it actually mean with this animal brain, with an inner lizard, mouse, and monkey, you know, wrestling around inside it? What does it actually mean? to have a brain that's not engaged with subtle forms of craving. In other words, with the, a brain that's no longer involved with resisting what's unpleasant, grasping after what's pleasant, and clinging to what's heartfelt, right? And that, I think, remains a mystery because we have a brain that is designed to crave and suffer in order to survive. What radical transformation must occur deep down, probably in the subcortical regions of the brain, quite linked to the brainstem, Deep down in there, these are the basic, this is the basic machinery under the hood of drive, right? What must happen down there so that there is a brain that literally in the operational definition of awakening in Buddhism is no longer capable of greed for what's pleasant, hatred for what's unpleasant, and if I might add, you know, no longer capable of heartache. Uh, with regard to issues uh, in relationships. And I think that's still quite a mystery, but it's one that really interests me a lot. How do we gradually decondition the brain so it's no longer inclined toward that kind of craving that leads to suffering and harm? And when you're talking about understanding what's going on in the brain, you're not talking about post-mortem, you're not talking about uh, autopsies, you're, you're talking about the kinds of things that can be measured with EEG and MRI and, and stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, for example, um, the simple process of noting your experience, just labeling it, oh, tension, joy, irritation, worry, uh, oh, my mother material, whatever. That process alone increases activation in the executive regions of the brain just behind the forehead, and it quells activation. It reduces and calms, it quiets, it tranquilizes activation in the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, and that's visible in MRI scans. That's, that's got a lot of practical value. Another thing that has practical value, I think, and this is what my book's about, Hardwiring Happiness, it's about internalizing repeatedly uh, the felt sense of core needs met to gradually decondition that inclination toward drive, that inclination toward you know, grasping after what's pleasant, 
resisting what's unpleasant and clinging to what's heartfelt in a word craving broadly defined through repeatedly letting it really sink in that you're in a fundamentally peaceful, contented, and loving state of mind in terms of our three core needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. As you internalize that again and again and again, there's less and less underlying sense of deficit and disturbance, which is the basis for craving that leads to suffering and harm. That itself is obviously not awakening, but it's a major aspect of it that really gets at the root, I think. Certainly this is the root view in Buddhist psychology, that the root of suffering is based on motivation. It's based on our states of drive and so forth. And so what I've gotten very interested in is how to get to the root of things and to really operationalize the third noble, the third noble truth in Buddhism. And the third noble truth is? The possibility of the end of craving. So we have the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, being craving broadly defined, a drive state, attachment, drivenness, pressure, in various kinds, subtle and gross. Then we have the third noble truth being the possibility, the end of that, that there really can be a mind in which there isn't that kind of disturbed, deficit-based, endless scratching and clawing for the next thing. And then there's the fourth noble truth of the path that leads to that. Yeah, and the end of craving wouldn't just mean a sort of a passive state in which you didn't care anymore or something like that. It would mean a state of profound fulfillment, I would think. I mean, in the yeah. Upanishads, it says contact with Brahman is infinite joy. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, a, a, let's say to use the analogy of a king, he, he can't kind of sit and rest until he finds his throne. Meanwhile, he's, you know, he tries this seat, tries that seat, and he's always wandering because none of those seats are his. But when he finds the throne, then he can sit and rest. So I guess we're saying that you know, ultimately, someone like the Buddha hadn't just psyched himself into a devil-may-care attitude, but he had grounded himself in the kind of the source of all creation, and which, by all historical and traditional definitions, is a, is a very blissful, fulfilled place to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the end of the path is not a numb state. It's, as the Buddha put it, that highest happiness, which is peace. And the truth is, from a biological standpoint, you drop a brick on the foot of a Buddha, I assume it's going to hurt. I mean, that's natural. The Buddha, toward the end of his life, uh, lost some of his dear closest uh, students, um, Sariputta, for example, and the Buddha grieved over that. Mm -hmm. That's very normal. Who would want to have a heart that's so awakened, quote-unquote, that it would not be moved by the death of a child, let's say. So the point is, moment to moment, streaming through our biological nature as animals, is unpleasant, pleasant, and heartfelt, broadly defined, that are the feeling tones, or in psychology, the hedonic tones that have to do with those three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connections. And when we encounter what's unpleasant, that tends to naturally activate an overarching integrative motivational system in the brain that wants to avoid harms. When we encounter, rather, that which is pleasant, that activates an overarching system in the brain that approaches rewards. And when we encounter that which is heartfelt, that activates a general system in the brain that wants to attach to others. This is a way of thinking about the three traditional poisons of hatred, greed, and delusion, and adding a fourth poison, which I think is relevant, the poison of heartache, that speaks to our profoundly social nature um, as human beings. Okay, so then the question becomes, to your point, there's a tipping point there. When we encounter what's unpleasant, there's an activation of the avoiding harm system in the brain. Do we tip into craving, right? 
in the traditional word, do we tip into tanha, the root of which in Pali is the word thirst, right? That's the original word for craving in early Buddhism. Or do we tip into what's called chanda, wholesome desire, where naturally we want to pull our hand away from the hot stove, but we don't get angry at the stove. Where naturally we want to protect someone we care about from harm, but we don't need to go to war with that which is unpleasant. That's the tipping point, and there's similar tipping points with that which is pleasant. Do we tip into greed for that which is pleasant, grasping, or can we hold it uh, in a state of pleasure, the middle way in Buddhism? We we enjoy it, we engage it, we aspire toward wholesome ends, such as the wish for awakening for oneself and others, or simple things like, you know, getting a stop sign that actually works next to a school so that there's not a lot of traffic there, things like that. That's the tipping point, tanha or chanda. Similarly, I think it was the red zone or the green zone, right? And then last when we encounter that, which is heartfelt, do we tip into loneliness or envy or shame or, you know, clinging to the other person, tanha, or do we tip into chanda, where we can tolerate the experiences that we're having while continuing to wish ourselves and others well. And I think the path of practice, particularly if you think about operationalizing the third noble truth, is to gradually change the conditioning of the mind, you know, change, literally, which means sculpting structure and function, so that increasingly, as we encounter inevitably in life that which is unpleasant, pleasant, or heartfelt, we increasingly naturally relate to it from the green zone, from the responsive mode of the brain on the basis of chanda, wholesome desire, rather than on the basis of hatred, greed, and heartache. I'm sure I can't conceptually do justice to what the Buddha was actually experiencing, um, but I suspect, you know, and I, I, you would probably concur, and you and I both have been long-term meditators, that he was experiencing something of the nature of, you know, at least some characteristic of it would, would be sort of a profound, unshakable peace regardless of the circumstances. And so if a disciple died, sure, there was grief, but that grief was more like a cloud passing in front of the sun. It didn't obscure the brightness of the sun. Or it was like a ripple on the ocean, if we want to use that metaphor. If we agree on that, then the interesting question is, what's actually going on in the brain? Because ordinarily people would just experience the cloud or the, the ripple on the ocean and not the full depth of the ocean. And there must be some corresponding uh, brain state with that, but if if one's predominant experience is of self-awareness or to use a more Hindu term or, or deep uh, abiding wakefulness or peace or whatever, there must be some kind of mechanisms in the brain that are maintaining that state while simultaneously entertaining the various relative experiences that we go through. Yeah, it gets really interesting to try to operationalize this. And the point I'm making, just like you're making it as well, is that when events happen, you, you may know there's this sequence in Buddhism called the chain of dependent origination. There's kind of an essential sequence in this chain that goes from what's called contact or in modern, I'm a neuropsychologist, so in modern psychological terms, stimulus. Then there's the feeling tone uh, related to that stimulus or in Western modern terms, the hedonic tone of it as uh, unpleasant, pleasant, or I would add heartfelt. And then in the Buddhist model, there's that movement from contact to feeling tone to craving, to clinging, and then suffering and harm. So right there, from the movement from the feeling tone, which is inevitable, we're animals, we're going to experience life as unpleasant, pleasant, or heartfelt in various ways. The question then becomes, what do we do with that? 
And to your point, the Buddha had, in effect, installed a profound shock absorber, the Maha shock absorber of all shock absorbers, mm -hmm. so that it was it's operationalized as literally it's impossible for uh, for it to arise in the mind of an awakened being any response to what's uh, unpleasant, pleasant, or heartfelt, any response that is aversive to what's unpleasant, grasping after what's pleasant, or clinging to what's heartfelt. You're exactly right. So how to actually do that? And I think that... At least uh, maybe a disproportionate aversion or, or grasping, because, I mean, certainly the Buddha's going to take his hand off the hot stove, and if right. someone offers him a delicious meal, he might enjoy the meal, but it's mm -hmm. like these things are put into their proper perspective, not intellectually, but experientially and continuously, and they have a rather insignificant value by comparison with the bliss of the self. Or the I keep using yeah. it. I know Buddhists don't talk of self, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, right. There's nothing added to it. You know, in a famous sutta, uh, in the seen, let there be only the seen, right? In the herd, only the herd. And by implication, in the unpleasant, let there be only the unpleasant. In the pleasant, only the pleasant. In the heartfelt, only the heartfelt. So to bring it down to some practical stuff, I think, first of all, that there must be in the brain of a Buddha, tremendous regulation of the ancient systems that tip into the red zone, that are designed to go into the red zone. I think that part of that regulation has to do with saturating those systems with the felt sense of profound safety, profound satisfaction, and profound connection as a resting state of being. I liken it a little bit to the keel of a sailboat. In other words, as the keel gets deeper, it's harder and harder to knock the boat over, even if the winds start to really blow hard. And even if they bang the boat hard, it recovers really, really quickly. So I think that's one thing. And to me, part of that speaks to the path and the uh, Tibetan saying, taking the fruit is the path. I mean, if the aim of life in terms of our three fundamental needs, safety, satisfaction, connection, very broadly defined. It's not the entirety of our needs. I think we have other needs as well. But in terms of evolutionary neuropsychology, those are really fundamental needs. Well, if you have a mind that is profoundly rested already in a prior, always already um, innate sense of um, peace, contentment, and love, in terms of those three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, it's really hard to knock you over. That's one. Two, I think in the brain of a Buddha, as it were, or people pretty far along the path, uh, is a very, what the neurologist James Austin says, describes as an allocentric orientation, a oneness experience. When you increasingly kind of open out into allness, and that's your experiencing of things in a non-dual kind of way, that also tends to deactivate or, or suffering or craving-based responses to the, the stimuli of everyday life. In other words, a lot of what drives the ancient machinery of craving, broadly defined as a response to stimuli, is this presumption of being a localized self over here. And as that sense relaxes, as there's a broader uh, sense of um, you know, oneness with everything, things are happening but there's no one to whom they're happening, as it were. And therefore, there doesn't need to be that kind of reactive response. And then I think last, uh, one of the things that again strikes me about people that are doing meditative practice is that their, their mindfulness is really acute. So even when 
uh, unpleasant lands, to your analogy, it's like a dark cloud in a vast sky, right? What's ongoing for them is a very broad sense of unit of consciousness, which maps well to uh, very high levels of gamma wave uh, brainwave activity, these very fast brainwaves that uh, in people who've done a tremendous amount of practice tend to integrate and create a kind of coherence in the brain altogether. And these brainwaves are also firing very quickly, so there's a lot of sense of synchronization. And that very rapid gamma wave activity uh, supports learning. So when you're in this very uh, unit of consciousness state of mind, just as an ongoing way of being, not just on the meditation cushion, um, you're more able to learn from your life experiences and steepen your learning curve as a result. Yeah, interesting. I know that the TM people have been doing research for years on brain uh, wave correlates of uh, you know, meditation. And, you know, I, I only have a layman's understanding of it, but they're, they're, they've always been talking about this global coherence that, that shows up between the hemispheres and between all the various parts of the brain where everything, the brain waves seem to be in synchrony with one another, whereas ordinarily they're dissynchronous. Um, is that what they're also seeing in, in Buddhist meditation research? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's just one brain. You know, it's kind of like one dharma. There's one truth, ultimately. The ultimate truth, there's just one ultimate truth, as it were. So we all have a human brain, and you're exactly right. And I think that brainwave pattern, that brain state, if you will, maps very well to the experiential state of kathunk, you know, what in <laughs> Buddhism is called, you know... That's the, the ancient esoteric term, right? That kathunk, <laughs> you know, the, uh, it's, it's one of the five jhana factors uh, <laughs> at Kagata in Pali, the, the sense of unification of awareness, it just all kind of comes together. And people, by the way, as a detail, if you want to play around with this, in your own meditative practice, you can explore what it's like to experience, and you can just start with breathing if you want, the sense of breathing as a body, as a whole. In other words, what normally happens is attention tends to skitter from one thing to another, or to put it a little differently, one different thing after another tends to pop into the foreground of awareness, even if we're focused on the breath, uh, this side of deep, deep, deep absorption. And what a person can do is, in effect, widen the spotlight of attention. So it's no longer this kind of like pinhole, as it were, on the stage with everything else is dark. You open the spotlight to include all the sensations of breathing. Let's say starting your chest and then move to the whole body gradually. So they're all known at once in, a, in the mind as a single unified gestalt. And that, I think, makes logical sense to me as a kind of training that a person can do in home practice, not just on retreat, to gradually train the brain to be able to go increasingly into states of unification of awareness, certainly as a foundation for profound states of unification of awareness, you know, on retreat or in other situations. Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to talk a lot more with you about um, these practical steps that you advocate for training the brain, but a little bit more on the theoretical before we get into that. I was reading an article by a physicist the other night, and he was saying that uh, the eye can actually detect one or two photons. Uh, the olfactory sense can detect a single molecule of a chemical stimulant, and based on this kind of finding, the uh, physicist Niels Bohr suggested that thought involves such small energies in the brain as to be necessarily governed by quantum effects. And the physicist I was going on to, who was, whose article I was reading, went on to, to speculate that perhaps there's some kind of room temperature macroscopic superconductivity that takes place in the brain which would enable it to serve 
as a, a kind of a conscious experiential interface between the absolute and the relative. In other words, we're not just talking about some you know inner calmness and and you know peace and whatnot that might be attributable to endocrine system secretions or something. We're talking about the actual connection with or experience of the ground state of the universe, the ultimate reality of the universe. And it's fascinating to consider that the human nervous system has the capacity apparently to to make that conscious realization and what the mechanics of that might be, whether there is some sort of macroscopic superconductivity taking place. That stuff is very interesting. and. So two parts about that. The first part is that we're now edging outside the natural frame, and I just want to mark that transition, as it were, the naturalist frame. And the second thing I would say is that this idea that we must take into account quantum effects, as it were, deep in the underlying physical processes of the nervous system for a full understanding of our experience and even consciousness you know, it, it's kind of controversial, and, and I my take about it is that I think there's probably some really interesting stuff there, and we're in early days about this. Uh, you know, neuroscience is a baby science compared to other sciences, and I think there is a transcendental, my view, and I think there must probably be some mechanisms of interaction. That said, I'm perfectly comfortable with people who remain agnostic, if not atheist, about the possibility of the transcendental because there's tremendous opportunity for practice inside the natural frame. Most of us in our practice are not engaging that intersection in any real sense between the natural and the transcendental, if you will. And I'm not saying that to argue against that. I'm just saying when I think about what arises in my mind when uh, it's late at night and I'm picking our daughter up at the airport and her flight's a little delayed and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Or uh, as we go through life, you know, when we face old age, disease and death, there's so many opportunities inside the natural frame for powerful practice. And I think that even there, it's kind of like the Wild West. There's so much we don't know. And it's also full of exciting opportunities for people kind of doing do-it-yourself neurodharma, in effect, because we can take into account just a few basics about the brain, including the sheer fact that our practice is gradually changing it for the better. We can take that into account in our everyday practice in ways that I think are really, really fruitful for ourselves and other people. I mean, the Buddha himself counseled against engaging the thicket of views, as he put it. And I think sometimes people can kind of get this a personal opinion. It's not an official opinion, but I think sometimes people can get caught up in the woo-woo stuff because it's kind of neat and fascinating and groovy. And it can become what John Wellwood called a spiritual bypass, you know, a way to not do the work down here on planet Earth in how we actually deal with others in our everyday life. Oh, yes. Well, I think that's very important, of course. But I think, you know, one man's woo is another man's... Awakening. Yeah, or his ho-hum regular everyday reality. Just because something is outside the realm of one person's experience doesn't mean yeah. that it's outside the realm of another's. But you know what you say about this—the practical stuff, the natural stuff—and Buddhism has great teachings on this about right behavior and you know, treating others as you would want to be treated, and so on. I think that in and of itself, even if, if as you say, the, the sort of the transcendental dimension didn't even exist or couldn't even be experienced, that's all extremely valuable in and of itself. 
And in most traditions, that, that stuff is considered to be essentially conducive to the development of enlightenment or higher states of consciousness and so on. In other words, if you're running around acting like a schmuck and then spend, spending an hour a day in meditation, it's counterproductive. You're, you're not really culturing the nervous system or the brain in a way that's going to get you anywhere very significant. Oh, totally true. And to be clear, you know, full disclosure here, my own practice uh, is very much about trying to open to... Uh, the transcendental, to, or to put it a little differently, to unconditionality, always eternally, just prior to the congealing into actuality at the emerging edge of now. So that's that's quite my practice, and I find that that's quite informed. And, and I think about you know what's going on under the hood, inside my own hood, as it were, uh, my own black box that I can work with to gradually become increasingly accessible to, if you will the felt sense of unconditionality as a kind of resting state as one continually participates in the realm of conditionality. So I want to be clear, you know, I, I'm engaging that intersection between the natural and the transcendental myself. I think it's just important to be careful about reifying the transcendental or getting into view about it because as they say, those who know do not speak, those who speak do not know, you know, Lao Tzu's famous saying. Anyway, that's a passing thought. Do you yeah. want to go practical here? Do you want to get more into neurodharma, as it were? Yeah, let's do that. Just one one kind of closing thought on what you just said, and that is that if and this might, maybe this will be a segue because you talk about um, ingraining pleasant, positive experiences and and sort of making these turning these uh, states into traits, and traditionally it's understood that the transcendental, as you call it, is a very blissful state or at least contact with it is and so if that is the case and if we do have a, a natural tendency to move in the direction of greater happiness if it's offered to us then it should be possible to access that transcendental state and to encounter greater and greater joy as we approach and, and, and enter into it so it shouldn't be necessarily a, a difficult or inaccessible thing I would say. Yeah I think that's right and I think that to use the analogy of the Wild West, as it were, it only takes one explorer to cross a hill and come back with a bag of gold, as it were, to yeah. say, this is actually possible for other people. We need to do the work ourselves, but it's actually possible. And clearly, I think it's unquestionable, uh, even from a purely atheistic, if you will, you know, entirely inside the natural frame perspective, that there are thousands and thousands of people in the world today and certainly millions historically who clearly report as you describe it profound bliss states uh, just being around them is blissful for other people something is happening there right uh, it re reminds me of the Bob Dylan line so I'll, I'll mangle it I'm sure but you know something's happening here Mr. Jones that you don't understand something like that anyway something is happening but you don't know what it is do you Mr. Jones that's exactly right. So, you know, uh, never bet against the human spirit or mind or never bet against God, you know, broadly defined. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. you know, there have been many such explorers lately. It's, it seems like yeah. it's getting more and more common, and it seems like it's possible to traverse that territory without getting shot by Indians or dying of starvation or something along yeah. the way. In other words, it's getting from my observation, easier and easier uh, for people. I, I've talked to people who hadn't even done any practice, and they're just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, boom, this profound yeah. awakening, which they never again lose. I know that's really 
really quite remarkable. It's as if something has shifted fundamentally. You know, minimally, the effects of the transcendental are manifest in the conditioned natural frame, or staying purely inside the natural frame, there's some kind of fundamental shift that's happened there that's stable for that person. In effect, their brain learned from awakening, you know, yeah. and learned how to stay awakened, right? Look at, look at Eckhart Tolle. You know, you, I'm sure you know his story. Yeah, yeah. Or, on, the, on the verge of suicide. And then he, he asks himself, I can't, he says, I can't live with myself anymore. And then he says, wait a minute, are there two of me? And then he goes to sleep. And in the morning, he wakes up awakened. <laughs> there you have it. Of course, it took him years to integrate it. Yeah, the waking down part that Samuel Bonder talks about. Yeah. Good. Well, let, let me let you shift into the next area you wanted to talk about. And we, we may loop back to some of this stuff uh, from time to time as we go. Oh, sure. Wherever you want to go, I'll take it. Maybe just a way to kind of transition it here is that obviously there are many forms of practice. There are many aspects. As you put it earlier, there's, you know, there's the dimension of morality, virtue, you know, restraint, wholesome conduct, right? There's the dimension of concentration, mental training, starting to open to non-ordinary states of awareness that are the basis for profoundly liberating insight, transformational changes in people, and then also wisdom. You know, the takeaway from that. I mean, those, as people probably recognize, you know, Buddhism, those are the three classic pillars of practice in Buddhism, sila, samadhi, and panya. You know, virtue, mindfulness, and wisdom, broadly defined. Okay, so that's really true. In all that, there's a part that has recently gotten me very interested. I call it neuro-bhavana. Bhavana is a word, cultivation, in Pali and Sanskrit. Bhavana, cultivation. How do we actually cultivate? How do you actually help a brain learn? Because if you think about it, the wholesome traits or factors, you know, again, the Buddhist model is very, is processes and causes. It's a very dynamic model, all right? So how do we get the causes going uh, inside the mind, which means inside the brain, that will promote our own well-being and welfare, as well as the welfare and well-being of other people? How do you actually do that? And then that goes to the ways in which the brain learns, which is this two-stage process of activation to installation to reactivation to reinstallation. In other words, you've got to get a wholesome state of mind going in the first place. And then the critically important point, Rick, that has really been very humbling to me personally is to appreciate that if you don't install that momentarily wholesome state of mind, that experience of compassion, that sense of steadiness of mind, let's say, that release from self-criticism, what it's like to actually be aware of the whole chest while you breathe, not just focusing on one little sensation after another. If you don't actually install that wholesome state of mind, it's momentarily pleasant, but it has no lasting value. There's no learning as a result. There's no internalization in, in some shift in neural structure and function. And so I think we're very good, generally speaking, relatively speaking, we're very good at activating useful positive states of mind but we're not very good at actually helping them sink into the brain. That's why I think the learning curve for most people in practice is fairly shallow, punctuated by long periods that often can feel stagnant. So what has gotten me very interested here is how to take those useful states of mind that we activate, both in formal practice and usually in everyday life, and how do you help them really land in the body? How do you take the body into account? Because the body learns the body and the brain headquartered by the brain, the animal body learns more slowly. 
than the flow of conscious experience. We need to slow it down to help the body, that little inner lizard, inner mouse, and inner monkey, take in the useful lessons of life. Now that slowing down is only a dozen or two dozen seconds or so at a time. Also, it's an enjoyable practice because most wholesome factors of mind, tranquility, conviction, mindfulness, absorption, bliss, you know, to name some of the factors of awakening, you know, and spiritual strength in Buddhism, they feel good. It's an enjoyable practice to take in the good. Um, so if you just slow it down and do that kind of practice, you can really steepen your learning curve. The art of it, which goes to something you brought up earlier, is for me that kind of razor's edge where we are simultaneously profoundly receptive to that which is wholesome, to let it really last and land, while at the same time continually letting go of it. Because otherwise, given that we've got a brain that evolved to want what it likes, there's the tendency of fueling clinging rather than uh, defueling clinging. But if people can drop down into that experience, which we all know what it is, to really let something sink in while simultaneously being unattached to it, you can really accelerate your growth down the path of awakening. And I notice you're using the word wholesome as opposed to just pleasurable because for some people, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll might be what lights their fire. But what you're talking about is something which could perhaps have a more um, salutary effect on, on the physiology uh, if, it, if we could install it more permanently. Yeah, exactly right. Like a little example recently. And to be clear, one can apply these methods to, you know, certainly the upper reaches of human potential, which has been our focus here. And also as a longtime psychotherapist and a guy who's been married and lived a long time also, you can really apply these methods to everyday upsets or even healing from past wounds that create a lot of suffering in general and also uh, impede your own spiritual practice, right? So all that said, I'm thinking that probably what would be useful is a little example here. Recently yeah, I read, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, so in my own practice, I read this little thing recently by Andy Alinsky uh, in Tricycle Magazine, so bows to Andy and Tricycle. Andy's uh, the resident scholar at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, really a great teacher, always worth reading. And so Andy was, he just said this little phrase about the mind of no grasping. Just that little phrase, the mind of no grasping. And in that moment, I got a very felt sense of what it's actually like to have a mind in which, in that moment, there's no sense of leaning into the next moment to make something come into being, to push it or produce it. And in the mind of no grasping, there's not merely the absence of grasping, there's a really powerful sense of peace. Okay, so this is not full awakening for me, but it was like what in psychology is called the zone of proximal development. That's a phrase from the Russian psychologist Vygotsky. It's within range. And this is where the opportunity is for us. That which is already consolidated, there's no added value if we keep working it. And that which is out of reach, we can't get it, so why push for it? Uh, but that which is in reach, which for me was this um, unstable but real sense of the mind of no grasping, that's where I can encourage consolidation, learning, internalization, installation. So increasingly, I have that really with me. So I tried to help myself 
stay with that felt sense, not just move on to the next paragraphs in the article, but to appreciate this was a moment that was valuable for me and to let it sink in. And then repeatedly, I've come back to that felt sense of the mind of no grasping, slowed it down, and tried to do in this process that summarizes the neuropsychology of learning, I, I summarize it in the acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L, have, enrich, absorb, and if you like, optional step, link, positive to negative together. In this particular case, I'm really trying to absorb what it's like to have a mind of no grasping and let it land, give myself over to it, so it really lasts inside me. In other words, I'm trying to not just, there it was, I had that activated moment, that mental state of the mind of no grasping, and instead of wasting it, as I would often have done in the past, I tried to help it sink in so that I would really learn from it as a result. This is not what I'm saying here original. We, we all know about this, right? We all have some felt sense of this. The question is, how often do we actually do it? You know, how often do we actually practice with useful states of mind to take the extra 10, 20, 30 seconds multiple times in a day to really help them land? And that would be an example for me of doing this practice. Okay, let's take another common example which everyone has had. Let's say you're taking a hike and the sun is kind of setting and it's really beautiful and you sit you sit there and you watch the sunset or something maybe mm -hmm. you're on a beach watching the sunset mm -hmm. uh, everyone's had that kind of experience and you know most people are sort of at a certain point gonna say okay let's get up and go home and have dinner uh, how would you do it differently so as to instill something more permanent from the from that mm -hmm. wholesome yeah. experience yeah uh, neurons that fire together wire together so Deep down in the bowels of the brain, it's a pretty mechanical process. Way up here, we can be composing Beethoven's Ninth or having deep awakenings or something, but way down here, it's pretty basic. So, MOBETA. You know, if you really want to summarize neurobhavana in two words, MOBETA. In other words, more episodes in which you're trying to internalize something wholesome and more depth of engagement in each one of those episodes. So, that said, if a person on the beach is as a kind of mini concentration practice is be, is absorbed in the felt sense of the beauty of the sunset maybe some related feelings of gratitude if they're just kind of hanging out in that they're getting those neurons firing together so they're going to tend to wire together as well what more commonly happens though is that the person's at the beach i can speak from some personal experience here oh nice sunset that's cool and then the mind will skitter to the next thing Oh, those are waves. Ah, the minor skater to the next thing, the call of the seagull. Oh, that's interesting. Passing thought. Oh, I've got to send out an email when I get home. Hmm, I wonder what's for dinner. Oh, some, some nice Beatles song going through your head and yeah, yeah, half yeah. a dozen other things. Yeah, and it could be one pleasant experience after another, you know, each one lasting two or three or four seconds. Most coalitions of synapses in the brain that are the uh, basis for a particular conscious mental state, those coalitions of synapses, I think of them as like eddies in a stream, they come together within a few tenths of a second. They usually stabilize for another few seconds at most, and then they tend to decay into something else. So most specific experiences don't actually last very long, and you can observe that obviously in your own practice. So if that person, let's say me, sitting there at the beach, is having one 
pleasant experience after another, one positive, wholesome experience such as gratitude and so forth, inner peace. But each one of those experiences is only two to three seconds long. That's generally not long enough to transfer from short-term memory buffers down into long-term storage, right? It's a momentarily pleasant, activated mental state, but it hasn't been encoded into any kind of lasting neural trait, right? That's what typically happens. Meanwhile, any kind of negative state, you know, suddenly a worry about, um, oh, I forgot to get the milk, oh, my partner's going to be really mad at me, oh, I never remember what he, she wants, blah, blah. Suddenly we're hijacked by that negative state, which is getting encoded very quickly in neural structure. So the alternative at the beach there is if you're having that experience of gratitude and ease, really give it to yourself. Let yourself have it. Express that kind of loving kindness for yourself among all beings, the one you have the most influence over. And really let that experience sink in for a dozen or two dozen seconds in a row, if not longer. It's kind of like a mini concentration practice, a mini absorption practice, one or two or three dozen seconds in a row. That's what's going to really promote the encoding of that, of that positive experience into neural structure. Let me uh, try to put it in my own words and see if I've understood you correctly. So let's say you're sitting on the beach and you're watching the sunset. Um, there, there can be a, just sort of an entirely um, object-oriented experience of the thing where you're looking at the sun and you're thinking, oh, maybe it's 95 million miles away, and I wonder if that boat that's going along is going to, you know, the sun's going to set right on it or not. And you're just sort of engaging in the outer experience without much tuning in to what's happening inside you. But the, another possibility, which maybe this is what you're getting at, is that you kind of um, you tune into or appreciate or dwell on, to some extent, the, uh, the, the feelings of awe or wonder or well-being or beauty or whatever that the external experience triggers in you. And by dwelling on those more, rather than exclusively the external experience, you instill them and thereby sculpt the brain. Is that yeah. the kind of thing you're saying? Yeah, exactly right. Just using that HEAL acronym, H-E-A-L, you know, you activate a mental state, you have it, right? Either because you just notice it, there you are at the beach, it's beautiful and wonderful, or you deliberately create it, like doing a deliberate compassion practice, mm -hmm. or deliberately thinking of something you're grateful for just before sleep. Okay, now you've got it activated, and then you need to enrich it and absorb it to really install it, right? And enriching, uh, for me, involves five well-known factors in the neuropsychology of learning. You've already named one of them. Um, so one factor is duration, Mobetta. The longer you stay with that experience held in short-term memory buffers, the more it'll sink into neural structure. Second, uh, intensity. The more intensely you feel it, uh, even if the experience is subtle, like tranquility or, or gratitude, if you give yourself over to it and it's the only thing that pervades your mind, it's functionally intense. Right? Third factor is the one you named multimodality. The more senses that are involved, the more that you bring it into your body, the more that you tune into the emotional aspects of it, the more you track you know, a kind of even an enactment, what's called embodied cognition. You know, you set up, sit up a little straighter to be determined. Maybe you hold out your hands like this. Uh, the image is not capturing it, but you hold out your hands like that as an expression of gratitude. That's going to intensify the experience, whatever is appropriate. And then fourth factor of enriching that's well known again, what builds neural structure? 
wood cultivates, that which is wholesome that you want to take with you. Fourth factor being novelty. Uh, the brain is a big novelty detector. Uh, the more that you can see that which is fresh, seeing the world through the eyes of the child, beginner's mind, Zen mind, the more structure you'll build. And then the last factor of enriching is personal relevance. Why would it be salient to me, broadly defined, not presuming an ego, but to me altogether, this person over here sitting on the beach, why would it be helpful to me to really let it land, this fundamental sense that everything's all right, in the, you know, maybe I've been worried about stuff lately or taking way too many things personally, getting my knickers in a twist. Here's this ocean, the ocean's abiding. It's been here long before me. It's gonna continue long after me. Why would it be helpful for me to really let this experience sink in? Ah, you know, we remember what's salient, what's personally relevant to us. That's the enriching phase, and that's exactly right. And it sounds complicated, but really boils down to mo better or have it, enjoy it. You know, once you've got that positive state going, recognize at least a handful of times every day, haha, this one's a keeper. Not because I'm clinging to it or getting attached to it, but because I understand that the gradual growing of these useful, wholesome factors of everyday well-being and certainly healing, as well as the upper reaches of, of human potential, I'm recognizing that the cultivation of these factors inside me is good for me and also good for the people I live with, you know, and work with and even the whole white world. Sounds like in a nutshell what you're advocating is just to be a bit more introspective, a bit more self-referral, you know, to actually kind of consciously tune into the good feelings and, and senses of well-being that certain outer experiences evoke and by dwelling on them longer than we ordinarily would if we're just outer directed in our attention to instill them and to stabilize them. I think there's part of what you said that I would, I would say, yeah, that is what I'm saying, but there's another part that I would say, mm, not so much. Okay. What I mean by that is that if we really recognize that the path of awakening is a fundamental process of developing inner strikes, very broadly defined. Right? Inner what? Strengths. 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 Broadly defined as just one overarching word. You know, virtues, uh, you know, virtue, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom. Those are inner strengths. The capacity to investigate our experience, tranquility, loving kindness, compassion, the Brahma Viharas, equanimity, you know, some sense of ongoing contact with unconditionality, knowing also how to navigate tricky conversations with partners, how to practice wise speech when the chips are down, how to do the hard, the right thing when it's hard to do the right thing. Anyway, these are inner strengths. If we recognize that our own path of healing, let alone awakening, involves the cultivation of inner strengths, that immediately takes us to the how of it. How do you actually do that for real, given two things? One, the brain's evolved negativity bias that makes it like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. It's very efficient, the brain, at turning negative mental states in the negative neural traits. And it's yeah, tell, tell the little carrot and stick uh, metaphor, because that's quite helpful in understanding that. Yeah, on that point, as our ancestors evolved, you know, they needed to get carrots, like rewards, mating, food, mating opportunities, and so forth. They also needed to avoid sticks, like predators, natural hazards, aggression inside their band or between bands. All right, carrots and sticks are both important. But the difference is that if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance of one tomorrow probably. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, 
in lethal environments uh, as our ancestors evolved, you know, for the 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, if you fail to avoid that stick today, kaboom, no more carrots forever. So we've got a brain that's very good at learning from the bat, once burned, twice shy. And I think it's important to, to be humble enough to take the body into account. It's really interesting that a lot of practices that are about awareness of the body actually don't really pursue the full implications of embodied living. Because embodied living means uh, a body that overlearns from the bad and is poor at learning from the good, even though good experiences are the primary source of the inner strengths that we're trying to cultivate down the path of awakening. Um, so for me, this is a very fundamental practice that faces the Stone Age negativity bias of the brain and also recognizes that the way to grow, the how of personal growth, is this fundamental matter of installing useful activated states of mind. And then last, if we have any real interest in undoing the powerful basis for craving inside us, this response to unpleasant with aversion, response to pleasant with greed, response to heartfelt with clinging, if we're really serious about undoing that kind of craving, we need to repeatedly internalize. I think of it as 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time. Repeatedly internalize the felt sense of core needs met so there's no basis for craving. There's no deficit or disturbance, which is the basis for craving. And for me, this is a very fundamental matter of practice, this progressive process of internalizing wholesome experiences to gradually defuel the fires of craving and harm. Do you find that people who practice what you're saying for quite some time, or people who have a dedicated meditation practice, for instance, evolve out of this Teflon, Velcro, carrot stick situation into a more evolved style of functioning spontaneously? In other words, they sort of become a bellwether, so it's an advanced guard for what civilization might be instead of the kind of caveman way of functioning that it seems to have retained. Yeah. I would say first that you know the negativity bias of the brain makes us very prone to becoming increasingly sensitized to negative experiences. There are feedback loops, for example, that involve cortisol that gradually make the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, ever more sensitive as a reaction to chronic stress, including the stress of being irritated routinely or frustrated or anxious. That's stressful, and that activates the ancient stress machinery of the body. And I guess some um, people still need that. I mean, if you're a soldier in Afghanistan, yeah. then you're kind of in a caveman society situation, yeah. and you need to be on your toes, or there's no more tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. Or being a kid growing up in a really scary environment. Neighborhood, your, yeah. Yeah, or home, neighbor, whatever. You know, yeah, we're tough critters. On the other hand, when we're in regular, normal life, far from perfect, but we're not being attacked routinely by saber-toothed tigers or people trying to blow up our bus, let's say, in that sense, then this negativity bias is actually not good for us. It doesn't support well-being. It leads us to uh, hurt other people and overreact to them. And then we constitute a threat for them. They go negative about us. We get caught up in this vicious negative cycle with other people. You can see that writ small and large you know, at the individual level or at the international level and so forth. On the other hand, you're exactly right, Rick. There is emerging evidence that through repeatedly registering positive experiences, just in kind of informal ways, or if people are interested in kind of the practices that I'm really trying to systematize and, and apply to different situations, 
they can, if they do these practices, gradually sensitize their brains to the positive so that the brain becomes increasingly efficient at turning everyday positive experiences, most of which are mild. They're not that million dollar moment on the beach. They're just this kind of ordinary sense of eating oatmeal and raisins taste good and I like nutmeg and it's a nice little moment here, right? You just or, described my breakfast from today. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> what an opportunity. Anyway, that if people repeatedly internalize those, if they repeatedly take in the good as it were, they can actually gradually sensitize their brain to the, to the positive. So they learn more and more quickly. And that's a higher order benefit from this practice of neurobhavana I'm describing, in which we're actually helping our brain become a better and better learner from those positive states that are the basis of the positive traits we want to cultivate in ourselves. I'm sure you're aware there's some really neat programs. Uh, for instance, there's that documentary, Doing Time, Doing Vipassana, where they're, they're teaching Vipassana in a prison. I think it's in India or someplace. And there's a, 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 lot, of, a lot of programs like that these days, uh, working with prisoners and PTSD sufferers. The, the David Lynch Foundation does mm -hmm. TM instruction in inner city schools and works with PTSD guys and all that. Yeah. So there's, there's some cool stuff where, and they're actually measuring some of this stuff and seeing changes that take place in the brain uh, in these prisoners as a result of their practice. So this PTSD yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be a lifelong uh, sentence. It, it can apparently be reversed with some of these sorts of things. I think it's really exciting. Speaking of, you know, Wild West, whatever, or put a little differently, I think neuroscience and, if you will, neurodharma is roughly where biology was a couple hundred years after the invention of the microscope, which is to say about 1825. And to be clear, whether it's Ramana Maharshi in the 20th century or the Buddha 2,500 years ago or other people who are less well-known but are clearly very far along the path, maybe even all the way, toward complete awakening, those people did not need to know a darn thing about the brain to engage you know, virtue, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom for their own awakening. On the other hand, I think there are opportunities, especially for busy householders who don't have access to 30 years of 24-7 slow grinding and polishing of monastic life. I think there are ways in which learning something about the brain can actually enrich practice through aiding insight, supporting disenchantment. When you start to appreciate that your own precious viewpoints, I'm speaking of myself here, are just the momentary production of some random, not random, but arbitrary coalition of synapses that will decay within seconds. You know, it's hard to take yourself so seriously. Also by, I think, understanding better how the brain learns, taking into account its ancient tendencies toward negative learning, we can actually accelerate our own path of awakening as we go through life. And we can also adapt practice. Uh, there's a natural variation in temperament. Uh, if you think about attention, uh, you have at one end sort of like anxious, rigid turtles, and at the other end you've got spirited ADHD-ish jackrabbits. And you know most, most contemplative practices have been devised by turtles for turtles in turtle pens to make them better turtles. <laughs> Even if you're a jackrabbit, by temperament, right? Or you live in a culture that's very jackrabbit, like today, uh, where we're bombarded with stimuli and we get habituated to it. So I think neuroscience there too can suggest, can suggest skillful means, ways of adapting and individualizing practice so that it's better suited to a person. Um, and again, can accelerate their learning curve as they go down the path of awakening. Do you um, tend to avoid things which might be considered unwholesome? For instance, 
I mean, have you deprived yourself of watching Breaking Bad? Uh, do you, you know, should we throw away Shakespeare's tragedies and just keep his comedies because they're kind of a bummer, you know? I mean, how do you sort of deal with popular culture and all the things it offers, many of which are designed to sort of make us sad or make us excited or, you know, challenge us in, in various ways like that? That's a great question. Um, and to be clear, you know, life is full of negative experiences. There will be unpleasant experiences, right? You know, the question is, how do we respond to them? Do we go red or green, as it were? You know, reactive or responsive, uh, tanha or chanda in our response to them, you know, and how we relate to them. That's really the question. And uh, so, you know, I myself, I want to be informed. Also, I'm, I'm a householder. I'm not, uh, I think of myself as a kind of intermediate practitioner. Uh, I'm not yet prepared to go into full renunciation. So I have watched Breaking Bad, uh, and I thought it was pretty amazing. Um, I had a guru for a while had a saying, uh, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. You know, in other words, there's a place, I think, for experiencing life and enjoying life. The question is, are we getting hooked about it? That said, you're right. I, Rick, I, I, I have gotten, I would say, more of a sense of being a friend to my own brain, to put it a certain kind of way, or another way of putting it, that little inner lizard, mouse, and monkey inside us all, more of a nourishing caretaker uh, in that, you know, when you really start to appreciate how quick the brain is at learning from the bad, you get a lot more thoughtful about what you run through your mind stream. And so I think it's one thing to watch a show like Breaking Bad that you know is, is entertainment, right? But on the other hand, to routinely indulge watching horror films, let's say, or other kinds of things that tend to really get into your head, I don't think that's very good for you. And then yeah. more generally, you know, think about our interactions with other people. They say something that irritates us. What do we do then? You know, there's a place for being with the negative experience, holding it in spacious awareness, obviously, okay. But if we get caught up in, that negative rumination loop of feeling wronged and going over and over and over the situation, you know, mounting our counterattack, running dialogues in our mind, what I should have said, what I will say, uh, feeling let down by others who didn't come through for us with regard to this third party who wronged us, whatever. You know, Sokni Rinpoche says, okay, you know, think the same thought again and again, fine, but 10 is enough, all right? In other <laughs> words, at some point, we want to pull out, right, of that negative loop because neurons that fire together wire together, including those little negative murmurings in the back of the mind. So I have gotten a lot quicker at, you know, moving through what I think are the three ways to engage the mind, just be with it or reduce the negative or grow the positive. And I've gotten quicker in my own practice at moving through that transition from just being with it to shifting into releasing it because um, not out of aversion, Right, but out of skillful means, I think, because I recognize that just, you know, uh, 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 it's not good for me and it's not good for other people. You know, there's a famous saying in AA, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. Uh, you know, there we are, we're harming ourselves by indulging these negative mind states. Yeah, and just in terms of movies and stuff, I, I can't see a distinction, at least in my own choosing, between things which are entertaining and, and kind of maybe even a little exciting, 
but which you, you naturally see as a story and you don't get totally overshadowed by, and then things which are specifically designed to scare the crap out of you or, or you know, to disgust you or, or things like that, which, you know, make, some people seem to get off on having deep impressions made by things, have, being shocked, you know. Yeah, I think it's a way, in a weird way for them to feel alive and real, you know, mm, to, to yeah. have that ancient, like, disgust is an ancient, ancient emotion. Um, you know, arguably the neurological basis for disgust is shared with really, really ancient animals, or fear. Fear was probably the, the most primal emotion of all, and uh, the neural substrates that can produce a fear reaction or a rage reaction, you know, are shared with ancient lizard turtle ancestors. So, um, you know, we want to be really, I think, careful about that and also careful about engendering that in other people. Mm. You could think about how much of our politics these days is kind of driven by fear or disgust, you know, on the one hand, you know, you know, presumption of being threatened, life is always threat level orange, etc., or contamination, which is the basis for disgust, contamination by the other who's not my tribe. And those are very powerful forces, and I think you know, do not underestimate the power of the dark side of the force. You know, we need to be careful about those kind of forces, particularly given the Stone Age brain that we've got, mm. which is also, of course, capable of profound, beautiful acts of compassion and altruism and extending the circle of us to include all of them. So, you know, I'm actually really hopeful for the 21st century in many, many ways. I'm clear-eyed, I think, about the fact that the planet's heating up and you know, there's growing uh, inequality of, of resources in certainly the developed world. Um, on the other hand, I, I'm pretty hopeful that there will be a very bumpy but relatively soft landing over the next hundred or a thousand years, and that people will gradually start using what is being learned about the brain to help us, I think, uh, have a tipping point in, in, in the world in which we get some critical mass. My number is a billion, you know, maybe it's two billion. We get a billion brains on green. We get a billion brains not fully awakened necessarily, although that would be great, but I'm a realist, right? But at least a billion brains that are rested most minutes of most days in a broad sense of underlying peace, contentment, and love. They're in the green zone, in the responsive mode of the brain, rather than tipped into its reactive mode. And I think if we get a critical mass of human beings, human brains, some number, whatever that number is, a billion, let's say, uh, or so, rested in mainly, if not entirely, the green zone every day, we will change the course of human history for the better. And mm -hmm. I'm pretty hopeful about that happening. It may not happen in my lifetime, but I think the possibility is very real for us because we finally do actually have the material conditions as a human species to truly meet our three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection uh, for every human being on the planet. And that wasn't possible until roughly the last generation or two. There literally were not the material conditions. There wasn't the pain control. There wasn't the sanitation. There wasn't the possibility for a widespread universal rule of law. But we are now starting to have that possibility. And the human brain is trying to figure out what to do with it. You know, we actually could have a planet. It wouldn't be utopian. People will compete with each other in business, athletics, whatnot. You know, five people will pursue the same man or woman, and only one will get the prize. Okay, life will still happen, but we could engage it fundamentally, rest it in the green zone, without that you know resisting or grasping or clinging, without that craving. That's a, fun a fundamental basis for suffering and harm. 
I like what you say about the tipping point. Um, you know, that's obviously a term that's used a lot in the climate change world, and uh, it's considered to be a point beyond which climate change will be irreversible because it'll just be runaway heating, and we won't be able. To, all the methane will be melting, and all we won't be able to reverse it. I strongly sense and have felt for a long time that something similar may happen in the spiritual world and that that will actually be the antidote to what's happening in in the material world and there are kind of there are some models in nature which might suggest that it need not necessarily be a billion which would be about 20% or or so of the population but i i i'm told that in the heart like 1% of the cells are pacemaker cells and they regulate the whole heart yeah. and in a, in a laser even the square root of 1% of the photons starting to fire coherently together mm-hmm. cause the rest of the photons to entrain and the, yeah. the entire thing becomes like one big photon yeah. so it could be much smaller percentages of society if yeah. the if the realization is profound enough uh, to be sufficient to um, produce the so-called hundredth monkey effect, and and yeah. and we could see a quite a rapid, really I, the kind of like the thing like the falling of the Berlin Wall or the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. sort of unexpected radical sudden change could occur yeah. for the better. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful about that, and I I really appreciate what you just said right there. And again and again, I try to really bring it down to earth. You know, what's it like to engage uh, threats in life? on the basis of an underlying deeply felt sense of, in effect, unconditional inner strength and peace in response to that which is threatening, rather than fear or anger. That's the distinction right there. That's the tipping point, speaking of, between the green zone and the red zone. Or what is it like for people to engage, you know, rewards, opportunities, or disappointments and losses on the basis of a deeply felt underlying sense of contentment and fulfillment and fullness rather than tipping into you know frustration and drivenness and greed about it again right there and if you know you can see the same thing in terms of our social needs and so I think that if we have people who are really rested in a deeply internalized unconditional not based on external conditions or circumstances an unconditioned sense broadly defined peace contentment and love there those people are very hard to manipulate at the individual level or at the cultural social level. In other words, they're very hard to manipulate into consumerist drivenness and greed, which is what's, of course, driving global warming. And also, they're very hard to manipulate in terms of the ancient drums of war. In other words, it's very hard to manipulate them with fear uh, of the other who is contaminating you and must be destroyed. Right? And so, even without spiritual awakening, that deeply internalized felt sense of ongoing peace, contentment, and love, I think that would really also support the tipping point we're talking about. Mm. Nelson Mandela is a great example. He just died, and uh, you know we've all heard how he spent 28 years in prison and so on, and was rather severely mistreated, and somehow came out of that experience, which we wouldn't wish, wish upon anyone, uh, as a very compassionate, forgiving man. Yeah. So set a great example for everybody. Well, maybe wrapping up here, if we could, mm-hmm. sure. uh, I want to, you know, I think about a lot this saying from Tibet that if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what's within range. I mean, that, that zone of proximal development, again, in effect, you know, what's the most important minute of your life? It's the next one, minute after minute after minute, because that's the minute you can do something about. It. You can't do anything about the minutes in the past, uh, the minutes more than a few minutes in the future, you start losing influence. But the next minute, that's the minute you can do something about. Kind of, for me, one aspect of practice, but a very important aspect of practice, is to ask yourself, 
am I harvesting what is authentically available to me in the most important minute of my life, the next one? And am I actually letting it sink in? If there is something good that can sink in, in many minutes there may not be. I think it's completely false to try to take in the good. If you're in the middle of a really tough situation or you're super upset or you're just shocked by some kind of devastating loss, all right. But most minutes for most people, for most days, do have some good things in them or could have some good things in them if they just widen the field of their attention, right, and notice the good facts around them. As the Dalai Lama puts it, uh, if you can be happy that other people are happy, you will always be happy because there's always somebody somewhere who's happy, right? <laughs> so the question then becomes, what do we do with what's there in the most important minute of our life? Do we waste it? You know, do we fail to see it in the first place? Or even if we see it, we don't have an experience of it. Or even if we see it and have an experience of it, we don't let it sink in. It just washes through the brain like water sheeting over a driveway. Or on the other hand, do we actually let it sink in out of kindness to ourselves and ultimately kindness to other people? To me, that's really the opportunity. That's an important opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's easy to underestimate the power of that deceptively simple practice. But bit by bit, synapse by synapse, you can gradually change your brain for the better. And I think of the Buddha saying a long time ago, he says, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Great. I think that it would be nice to end it with that beautiful quote. So let me just... Uh make a couple of concluding remarks. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to do this and work, helping work through the technical hurdles we had to work through to make this happen. I think that, you know, as you said, neurophysiology is probably in its infancy and it'll be interesting to see what happens if we live long enough <laughs> over the coming decades in terms of what's really understood about the uh, physiological correlates of enlightenment and higher states of consciousness. For instance, Joseph Goldstein, when I interviewed him, said that Mahayana Buddha, Buddhism outlines like four major stages of awakening, and I, we didn't even have a chance to discuss those. But just as we have distinct physiological correlates for waking, dreaming, and sleeping, there are probably distinct physiological correlates for these higher states, and it'll be interesting yeah. to see as the understanding of those gets more detailed and standardized. Maybe we'll have that interview in 10 years from now. Or 100. Any, or 100, well, in our next lifetime. In any case, it's a fascinating field, and I appreciate the contribution you're making to it. And I always appreciate it when people offer something concrete and practical mm -hmm. that, so, that people can actually do, you know, to achieve some result, rather than just talking nice philosophical points. And you've certainly done that in, in your books. I'll be linking to your books from your page on batgap.com. So those who are listening to this while driving or something, if you go to batgap.com, there'll be a page for Rick Hansen, and I'll link to the books he's written, and there'll be a short bio of him and a link to his website, of course, and so you can explore in greater detail what he's offering. There's also a uh, discussion group that crops up around each interview. Each interview has its own dedicated discussion page there. It's just called Forum, although... Someone said we should maybe change it to bat chat. I don't know. <laughs> um, so there'll be, sometimes it gets very lively and sometimes it gets very off topic, but um, hopefully it'll be useful for people and they'll stay on topic. There's a donate button on the site, which I appreciate people clicking if they can. Um, there's a link to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. 
Uh, and there's also a link to the audio podcast in case you, you know, like to listen while commuting or jogging or whatever. You can sign up for the iTunes podcast of this. So thanks for listening and watching. Thank you again, Rick. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thanks.